Please be opening your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14 as we're continuing our study of the life of Abraham. Boxing fans will never forget the three great matches between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Before their very first fight back in 1971, Ali was uh, interviewed by Life magazine. And you remember at that time in his life, uh, he was a rather, uh, let's say, confident young man. And he said in that article, there seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear this confusion up on March the 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. And then he says, there's not a man alive who can whip me. And he started jabbing the air. He said, I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I am the greatest. I am the king. I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. Well, you know that he lost that fight. And in the years since, especially stricken with Parkinson's, he's become a much more humble person. But it raises a question that is one of the great themes of the Bible, and that is, who should be king? And at some level, every person has got king. The word king shows up for the very first time in the Bible in the chapter that we're going to read tonight, in the part of the drama of Abraham's life. And here's the sad thing. It's also the first chapter in the Bible to mention war. Because if you study kings, you inevitably are going to study war. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter because the first few verses are just a long list of names that you would love to see me stumble over trying to read. But in that long list of names, there's a series of kings led by a monarch named Cater Leomer. And they had held as a kind of a vassal state, this land uh, east of where Abraham was living. And these countries were paying tribute to Cater and his kings. And after about 12 years of this, the Canaanite kings, led by the king of Sodom, said, we don't want to pay tribute anymore, and they stopped. So Cater and these other kings came then to the west to reestablish their sovereignty over this subjugated Land Back then, almost every city was its own little empire, and every city had a king. And so they're coming to take these cities and put them back under their rule, and they do so, and they win a great battle. Now, we're going to pick up the story in verse 8 of Genesis 14. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Caderleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Golem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills." The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. As I mentioned, this is the first recorded war in Scripture. 
And the only reason we know anything about it is because it involved Lot. I'm not suggesting it was the first war among mankind. I'm sure there were many before it. But in the Bible, history is only recorded as it relates to his story, the work of God uh, redeeming the earth through his people. And so we only find out about these kinds of things like the wars of other kings if they affect the people of God. And this one did. You know, it mentioned it was full of tar pits. That land was famous for several of its minerals and for asphalt. And it was also a very, very important trade route. Because if you wanted to get from the east or from the north down to Egypt, you had to go through that land. And so the very thing that made this land desirable to Lot made it desirable to kings. And verse 12 is very important. It says that he carried off Abram's nephew Lot, notice, since he was living in Sodom. Now, if he hadn't been in Sodom, he would have never been involved in this conflict of kings. But he was, and he got carried off. It's interesting. He went to Sodom to procure prosperity and possession for himself, and that's the very first thing he lot. Now, word gets back to Abram. And it would have been very easy for Abram to stay uninvolved. It had been very easy for Abram to say, you know, Lot's only getting what he deserves. You reap what you sow. That's what he gets for being a selfish nephew living over there in Sodom where he doesn't belong. Instead, Abram chose to be his nephew's keeper. He did not conclude that Lot's capture was God's judgment. And so he did something then that, at least in the Bible, we never read of Abraham doing again. Abraham went to war. So now let's read, starting in verse 13. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and Avner, and all whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Now there's been a lot of speculation how a small army of men could have routed four kings. Uh, Some, including Dr. Willis of ACU, said maybe he only attacked the camp where Lot was. Another thing that's very possible, in those days when kings would win a battle, they would ride hard for three or four days, leave the scene of the battle, and then they would get out the booty and they would party hardy. And so it says he attacked at night. Most likely these people were totally drunk when Abram attacked. He knew what he was doing. But the fact of the matter is Abram went to war. And people died. And the war question is very, very difficult. And we're not going to spend a lot of time there today. It's not going to be the main point of the sermon. But since it's the first time it shows up in the Bible, I want to talk about it for just a second. Three things you've got to notice. Abram did fight. He had a small army trained to fight under his authority. 
And God never rebuked him for fighting. Now, what makes all this difficult is Christ's command to love our enemies. At the same time, did you notice Christ never told a soldier to leave his profession? Not one single Roman soldier in the New Testament, Roman centurion, has ever commented on it any way but favorably. In fact, Christ told us to pay our taxes, which in his day went to support the Roman army. God never says war is ideal. But sometimes in the Bible, war was God's idea. And God commands war to defend the innocent and to stop the spread of malignant evil. And he grants to governments the authority to execute civil justice. But here's the problem. This is why I struggle so much with the war question. Why probably my personal uh, opinion is more pacifist than many of you. Here's my problem. Kings are skilled at masking their ambition as a concern for justice. No king ever says, we're going to war because I want more land and I want more minerals and I want more wealth and I want more power and I want my empire spread. No king ever says that. Every king goes to war saying, a great injustice has been visited upon us and it is only right that we correct it. That's always the reason we say we go to war. It's rarely the real reason, but it's always the reason we say we go to war. I do believe in the concept of just war. My problem is God's the only one smart enough and pure enough to know what that looks like. I think that's why the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to talk about global war. The Bible spends most of its time talking about the individual war in all of us. In fact, over in James it says, why are there wars? Isn't it because of all the wicked desires in your own soul? Ambition is what causes conflict of any and all kinds. I do think this particular battle was just. Because there's no way, I think, to explain Abram's victory except God was with him. And the true enemy, though, knows that right after a victory is a great time to catch a believer off guard. So now we get to what I think is the real heart of the chapter and the text. It's still about kings. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Caterleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. 
I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eskal, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting fellow. He just shows up. He was a Canaanite king of the city of Salem, which would later be known as Jerusalem. And he's a king in a polytheistic culture that is practicing a monotheistic faith. Notice he is not allied with the wicked kings of the plain. Somehow, he has retained knowledge of the God of Noah, whom he worshipped as God Most High. And Abram quickly recognized that this God Most High, El Elyon, is the same God I've been following all the way from my homeland back in Ur. It's a different name, but we are worshipping the exact same God. God. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to take this little story and do some fun stuff with it. Because he's going to argue that this Canaanite king is a type for Jesus Christ. Over in chapter 5 of Hebrews, he's going to say, Now, no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He has to be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. And that is why Christ did not exalt himself to become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I've become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, and by the way, this is from the psalm quoted more other than any other in the Bible. You're a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. In other words, he was talking to a bunch of people, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, who have accepted Jesus Christ, but they're getting great pressure to go back to their old Jewish system. And one thing the Jewish system offered them was a priesthood. Here's an interesting thing. You study religions of the world. It is innate in man to want a priest. They might call him a shaman. He might call him a witch doctor. But it's innate in man to want someone to stand for him in the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you've got a better priest than anyone in the Aaronic priesthood. You've got a Melchizedekian priest. And when you look at the roll call of Melchizedekian priests, it's a short list. There's just two. There's the type and there's the fulfillment. He goes on then two chapters later, chapter 7, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, and also a priest of God Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against many kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. And then Abraham took a tenth of all he had won in the battle and gave it to Melchizedek. His name means king of justice. He's also king of peace because Salem means peace. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever resembling the Son of God. Consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized how great Melchizedek was by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. He says, Jesus and Melchizedek have four things in common. Number one, he says, they're both priests and kings. Now remember, in the Old Testament, you couldn't do that. You could be king, you could be priest, you couldn't be both. But Melchizedek was a priest and a king. And so is Jesus. Not only that, he says, they're both 
kings of justice and kings of peace. Not only that, he says they're both priests forever. Now, he, he, he uh, is pretty creative here. What he's saying is, Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his parents. We don't know his genealogy. He just showed up. He's, he's a priest forever, just like Jesus is. And then he says, and here's the clincher. Both of them were greater than Abraham. And when you're talking to Jews, that's a big thing to say. He said Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. And by doing that, he was acknowledging just what Melchizedek said. That God Most High delivered you from your enemies. And the king of Salem's visit reminded the old patriarch who the king of kings really was. And by the way, that reminder came at a good time. Because guess what? Another king came onto the scene. His name was Berah. He was the king of Sodom. Now, do you think he became the king of Sodom by preaching against wickedness? He didn't become king by disapproving of the godliness of that city. And he's a smart man. And he recognizes, I've got a new neighbor, and this guy is powerful. And I don't know what God he worships, but that God, at least when it comes to warfare, knows what he's doing. And so he says, let's make an alliance. And the offer seems very magnanimous. You just give me back the people. You don't have to feed all them. You keep all the stuff. But Abram quickly realized, if I do what you offer, I'm robbing God of glory. Because then people will be able to say that Abram is a great, great man, thanks to his partnership with the king of Sodom. And so Abram said, I've pledged to God most high. By the way, notice he uses Melchizedek's name. I pledged to God most high that no other king would ever get any credit for anything happening in my life. By the way, did you notice that he evidently anticipated such a proposal? He said, I've already made a pledge. I've already taken an oath. I've already raised my hand. I've already got king. And he called him the creator of heaven and earth. Or the Hebrew word could also be possessor of heaven and earth. And when you serve the sovereign that possesses and owns everything, what do you need from a wicked king? I think this story may have been what's uh, inspired the writing of Psalm 146 because it uses some of this same language. Look at it. with. I want us to read this together. I'm going to read the word in white, and I want you, the church, to read the words in yellow, okay? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Do not put your trust in princes. In mortal men who cannot save, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Let us you, 
Amen. Now, why is all this important? I'll tell you why. Because the battle of kings continues. Until Jesus comes back, kings are going to fight. But not only that, the battle to choose kings continues. Until Jesus comes back, we will have to daily make the choice of who will be our king. Because at some level, everybody's got king. Can I tell you something kind of interesting, I think? When you study the way the devil and the demons talk about God, they use the name Melchizedek uses. Go read your Gospels. Every time a demon is spoken to by a demon, we know who you are, Most High. Or go read that passage in Isaiah 14 where Lucifer is talking about how I will ascend, I will make myself like the stars. I will make myself like the Most High. You and I, until Jesus comes back, will constantly face the battle between kings. Who's most high? Now, how can you know you've made Abram's choice? Well, I think there's two clues in our text. Here's the first. I don't think there's any question when I own nothing. If God is most high, then everything under him belongs to him. And all we are and all we possess is derived. I think this is the very First message of the Bible. You've heard me say it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so it ain't yours. Is the actual, I think, paraphrase of the Hebrew. (laughs) And how did Abraham acknowledge this? Please notice, by tithing. Would you please notice, Abram tithed 400 years before the law of Moses. So don't ever come to me and say, Rick, you shouldn't talk about tithing. We're not under the law anymore. Are you a child of Abraham? In fact, I'm going to argue later in the sermon, you can go back to the idea of giving God the first all the way back to Abel and Cain. It has always been the understanding of the people of God. God gets first, never second, because he's most high. If God is most high, then I own nothing. And tithing was Abram's declaration that God was the possessor and that he could trust God and not man for his future. I don't know about you, but I think it would have been easy for Abram to say, you know, I deserve something. This is God's bonus to me, all this stuff I want. Because I stepped out in faith and I rescued a worthless lot. And so this is my bonus. No. Sodom, Bera, you can have everything except God's part. Baron Rothschild was one of Europe's most wealthy financiers. He got out of a carriage one day and gave the guy a tip. And the uh, carriage man was a little frustrated and said, the Baron said, what's the problem? Well, your son always gives me a bigger tip. And he replied, well, he can afford to. He's got a rich dad and I don't. When you serve the possessor 
of the heaven and the earth. You got a rich dad. And here's my point. When you live with the understanding that ten tenths belongs to God, then you've got king. There's no question, number one, when I own nothing, and number two, when I fear nothing. Fear is the product of competing kingdoms. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're walking with God, there's no mention of fear. When does the first mention of fear show up? After they entertain the possibility of a different king. Competing kingdoms produces fear. Because Abram had the right king, he didn't fear the wrong ones. Look at Psalm 91. If you make the most high your dwelling... Even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. If God is most high, then he reigns over anything threatening to pull me under. To me, this is the only way I can understand the biblical man to give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say to give thanks for all circumstances. It says to give thanks in all circumstances. And I can do that if I really do believe He is most high. He is still over the very thing threatening to pull me under. But here's the thing. You've got to make this choice every day. Because every day a new pseudo-king shows up with a proposal. Frederick the Great was king of Prussia. He was widely known as an agnostic. and He's having this dinner party one time for some of his uh, staff and his generals. And he's making very crude jokes about Christ. And of course, the whole place is rocking with laughter some because they think it's funny and some because they're, the king thinks it's funny. But there was one old man at the table. He was General von Zeeland, one of his most trusted uh, servants and a strong Christian. He rose and he said this. He said, Sire, you know I have not feared death. I fought and won 38 battles for you. I'm an old man. I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than you. The mighty God who saved me from my sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, who you are blaspheming. I salute you, sire. As an old man who loves his Savior on the edge of eternity. The place went silent and then with a trembling voice, the king replied, General von Zeeland, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. And the party was over. I believe fear and worry can identify areas where God is calling us to grow. Identify areas where we're struggling with who's king. 
And so I want us to do something tonight. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. I want us to worship a little bit more. Right before this teaching, we heard a beautiful song. Jesus, you are God, high above all else. And we're going to sing several more songs now that just, just put God in the place where only he deserves as most high. I want you to, if you're willing, to do something as we sing. At some point, as you wrestle with an area of your life where you're struggling, I want you to do what Abram did. What did he say? He said, I raised my hand, and I took an oath. And so at some point while we worship, as you wrestle with some part of your life where you're struggling to let God be king, I want you just to raise up your hand as a sign to God, a repledge to God that he's most high. These are awesome songs of praise. You can't sit them, sing them sitting down. So please stand up and let's worship. Here I am. I don't have much to bring. But here's my heart. And I lay it at your feet. Draw it Your presence and throne of Hear its praise of your never-ending love. You are my Lord, you are my King. This sacrifice of song I bring, I offer it. Oh. 
hearts of the weak, from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all people, this song we raise, Lord, throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord. Exalted in every nation, sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high, be magnified. From the ends of the earth, from the, ends of the, earth, from the depths of the sea, from the, depths of the, sea, from the heights of the heavens. Your name be praised from the hearts of the weak, from the hearts of the weak, from the shouts of the strong, from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all people, from the lips of all people, this song we raise, Lord, throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned. Sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high, be magnified. Throughout the endless ages, you will be crowned with praises, Lord, most high, exalted in Sovereign of all creation, Lord, most high, be magnified, be magnified, be magnified, for Thou, O Lord, art high above all. Exalted far above all gods. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted.
remain standing. We're going to finish that song in just a moment. I think until Jesus comes back, there will be wars and rumors of wars, because that's what kings do. But what the Bible asks is, what about the war in your heart? There's only one way for there to be peace in your heart, and that's for Jesus to be the only king. Uh, Tonight we're going to offer the opportunity for anyone who's never made Jesus Lord and King to come and be baptized and to end the war that is the only war that is the ultimate end to all wars. Uh, We invite you to come and put on Christ tonight and make Him King while we finish our praise.